Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold a swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, would famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that hath dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are once again doing an episode where David and I nerd out entirely too much about Shakespeare. Though I've had recent feedback from our listeners that they actually really like these episodes. So that says a lot about our listeners. <laughs> yeah, good. I'm glad because boy, are we getting into it. <laughs> so David was right at the end of last week. We did need to watch Henry V first for the 1946 nominees because it came out in 1944 in England to basically meh response yeah and then for some fucking reason the united states decided that it was great in 1946 and nominated it for an academy award don't know what that fucking reason is because this movie blows this movie does suck shit but it also sucks shit in the exact way that i know exactly why the academy is into it it is boring as shit Shakespeare that constantly announces itself as important, which is Shakespeare that I hate, but that some people think is like, well, that's why he's the greatest artist of all time. This nomination encapsulates the American misunderstanding of Shakespeare, which is... He's a genius. Everything that he wrote was great. And if I don't like it and I'm not having fun, that must mean it's great art. <laughs> right. Oh, God, it sucks so bad. It sucks so bad. I mean, the general outline of this is it's Henry V. So it's the story of Henry V, but like from a super duper English point of view. Shakespeare can barely suggest a couple of times that, like, maybe this entire thing is a misadventure, but historically it's just a huge misadventure that they try and put the best possible face on. Henry V goes to France, fights France, beats France, bones down with a French lady and immediately dies. Like, that's that's what actually happens historically. <laughs> I mean, not just a French lady. She is the daughter of the king of France. Right. But like, historically, because he dies so fast, that's not relevant. That it doesn't end up actually mattering that much. But yes, you are correct. He went there to bone a specific French lady, and it's an important aristocratic one. And also to just take over France. Right. Which they spend a good amount of time in this play justifying in a scene that is... So... Full disclosure, I have directed this play before within the context of the other Henry plays. So Henry IV parts one and two and Henry V all tell the story of Hal, Prince Henry, who later becomes Henry V. And this play sucks. It's not a good play. It has some incredibly beautiful speeches in it that actors want to do in their life. 
And then everything else that connects those speeches is basically fucking garbage. There's a lot of really not funny anymore. And I would argue probably not that funny then. (laughs) Scenes that revolve around accent humor and also leaks. And I'm just not into accent humor or vegetable-based humiliation. So I get why every actor wants to play this part. Because you get to do Once More Into the Breach. You get to do St. Crispin's Day. There's another speech, which this movie completely cuts, but which is also really powerful. And you get to do this whole speech about what is a king? Isn't he just a person like anybody else? Sort of thoughtful meditation on what royalty is. It's a really great part in a really shitty play. When you read the description of this, the big dramaturgically interesting thing they're trying to do here is the framing devices. You're watching a performance of this at the Globe Theater, and then it transforms into the real thing. And that makes sense because one of the weird things about Henry V is they just keep having this chorus character that comes out and apologizes for how the special effects are so shitty. That like, sorry, we don't have horses. Sorry, you can't actually go to France. Nothing cool is going on. Sorry. And then leaves again. It's better written than that because it's Shakespeare. But the thing I thought this was going to do is do that at the beginning because the first speech they give is, oh, for a muse of fire, which is fucking great. Yeah, absolutely. No question. (laughs) Do that one. Okay. And then at some point somebody goes through a door and it transforms into the real thing. And you're like, holy shit. And that holy shit transition is like, okay. But then they keep having the apology monologues. Fucking why? You don't need to anymore. There are horses. Like the whole point of doing this is you can cut those now. Yeah. We're on an actual field. There is a full tent city for the army and fires and everything else that you're saying you don't have. Can you please imagine them for us? Which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The 30 minutes that this movie takes place on stage in the globe, quote unquote, felt as if it were personally designed to torture me. So there are two parts of that that are just absolutely disastrous. One is... As you say, it's 30 fucking minutes. It should be the first scene and a half. You introduce every single character. You do all of the shit that takes place in England in Henry V at the Globe is insane. Yeah. The moment Henry walks out on stage should be the moment it swaps over. And that's 10 minutes in rather than 30. And they do this big build up to him walking out on stage where you think they're going to do it. And then they don't. And then there's... Three more scenes. Anyway, the other thing that drives me insane about it is because it's so long, they spend so much time going like, and here's what it's really like at the Globe. And it's all wrong. They're fucking incorrect. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Ah, spoken like the son of a Shakespeare historian. (laughs) Yes. Like, I know this is my problem, but don't spend so much fucking time on this thing that we should all be so impressed about how Elizabethan theater really went. And it's like, if we're going to do how Elizabethan theater really went, give me some Middle English barely understand it, like grunting. Like, I don't... (laughs) I shouldn't be able to understand what anybody's fucking saying, first of all. (laughs) Okay, 
Shakespeare is modern English, is not Middle English. <laughs> yes, but the British accent in the Elizabethan period is fucking Was wild. Indistinguishable from current <laughs> English. That is totally fair. There's two more things actually that really suck about the scenes in the globe. One, by virtue of wanting to really play up this Elizabethan and onstage largesse, the acting is absolutely agonizing. Yeah. It is so big. All of the jokes are so broad. The bit where the bishop that they bring in to read all of the history stuff that justifies invading France, which I've seen it played multiple ways. I really hate when they do it very, very slowly. And this, they not only do it slowly, but he loses his place and drops his scroll. So we do it even more slowly because it's a bullshit justification, right? And like, that's what's funny about it is... It doesn't matter what he says. It's just a lot of words to say, oh, yeah, it's totally fine if we invade France, even though it's kind of not. Yeah. And you can do varying levels of like how kind of not. There's a really, really good production that was done at the National about 15 years ago where they said it in contemporary times. And it was really not funny at all because it was a very obvious analog for the invasion of Iraq. Yeah. Uh, and this was like situation room and it became very harrowing to watch this justification because it was such bullshit. And then other times, if you don't want to go quite that intense, <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 sure. Okay, it's fine. Let's just get on because we all want to go and beat up some French people and like rah-rah English patriotism. So dragging it out is totally unnecessary and it's not funny. And that's just one instance of not funny joke performance in this 30 minutes the other is that the groundling audience apparently finds everything that happens fucking hysterical and so you have a laugh track yeah it's really bad and it's constant it's constant and it's really uncanny valley in like what the audience finds funny and when they find it funny which is actually vaguely disturbing, in addition to just being bad. There's just this sense of, like, what, why is everyone laughing? What is happening? Are you? Is somebody dying offstage? Like, what are, what are you <laughs> laughing at? Did a stray dog run into the theater? There's no joke here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, our basic take on this is that Henry V is an actor-director trap. Because on its own, it is nonsense and vaguely agonizing because it's part three of Henry the Fourth, and just performing it on its own you really gotta do some dramaturgical work to make this play bearable but the monologues are so fucking good that every actor is like gimme 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 I want that play and they're great they're great speeches I do not blame any actor for wanting to do them I mean, between both Henry's speeches and the chorus's speeches, you know, who doesn't want to do over a muse of fire? I get it. But you have to cut this play to shit in order for it to actually be at all interesting. And if you're doing it outside of the context of the other two Henry plays, there are references to characters that die within the context of this play offstage. Mm-hmm. And it's like... I who, who's Falstaff? Have we ever met? No, we never met this guy? Why do I give a shit that he's dying? <laughs> the Catch-22 of Henry V is, I think, most encapsulated in 
you should just cut all the Falstaff stuff. And nobody's ever going to fucking do that. But there's no reason for that to be in this play, except that it's Henry IV Part Three, And Henry IV has a fucking breakout character. He's a hit. He's going to need to be in all of these from now on. And his name is Falstaff. And you have to say what happened to Falstaff, except nobody... <laughs> except if you haven't seen those plays, nobody knows who the fuck he is. So why do you care if he dies off stage? And then they have a whole scene about him dying off stage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I kept comparing this also in text to Avengers Endgame, which is one of my patented highbrow, lowbrow, smug as fuck bullshit takes. <laughs> I don't think it's a bullshit take. I, I'm going to defend your take. <laughs> now you can do it. <laughs> it is the fourth part of this thing, because technically the Henriad is four plays, but the first one is actually the disconnected part of the Henriad that you don't actually need necessarily. You can just do the Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fourth Part Two, and Henry the Fifth, but all of those are really of a piece and are telling one continuous story. And because of that, it's like this weird third part where the first half of this play is doing heavy lifting about like, oh, I forgot to tell you this thing, or like, oh, this plot thread didn't really get resolved in Henry the Fourth Part Two. Oh, I'm sure you're wondering what these characters think about the change in Henry from in Henry V from who, the character he was in the last two plays. And like all of this stuff where without the context of the first two, it doesn't make sense. It's boring. And it's a huge fucking bummer. In the plot of this... Henry V is this propulsive character that's like going off and doing this stuff and giving these great speeches. But in the context of the first two Henrys, there's like this bitter sweetness. He used to be this fun guy. And now the like heaviness of the crown has made him go off and do this war. That If you're performing this well and performing it as one continuous thing, Henry kind of shouldn't want to go to France. That's maybe not his vibe as much. But if you're performing Henry V on its own, that's his entire character, is I'm going to France now. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of stuff in this play that feels like administrative work. Yeah. All of that wrap-up that you're talking about, but then all of the scenes that we have that go to the French court are basically, here's why... The French suck and kind of deserve this, even if it's not a justified invasion, right? Yeah. And it feels perfunctory. So much about this feels perfunctory. And you really just want to get to the battles and the speeches, and that's it. And the battles aren't even written. You just have to stage them, and that's cool. There are versions of Henry V that stage the battles really, really well, like the one that, uh, what's his face did? <laughs> oh, the Kenneth Branagh one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, his battle is amazing, and his focus in his Henry V is on the horrors of war and all of that. And, like, it's arguably a lot better than this. It's also really fucking boring, because Henry V is a really fucking boring play, period. Because I haven't seen this Henry V before. I didn't realize how much that Kenneth Branagh one is just directly a corrective to this. Oh, completely. Oh, completely. Is Branagh going... Actually, he fucked this up, and here's what you should do with Henry V. And you're right, it's still boring, but I actually like it a lot better now that I know it's telling this play to fuck off. Like, the, 
<laughs> oh yeah by comparison it's great and in conversation with it it's even better but the, yeah i mean they're both boring it's a boring play Laurence olivier is playing henry five in a way that is a super ponderous hamlet for some reason this entire film is built around the big speeches and letting him do the big speeches and like they all feel totally unearned and disconnected and actorly because he just wants to do the big speeches from Henry V. Like we say, we've talked a lot of, in this episode about that's always kind of the specter of this play. That's always what you're fighting against. This movie doesn't fight against it at all. This movie is just like, you're just going to get to the St. Crispin's Day speech and you're going to be fucking happy about it. And that's the way it feels like Avengers Endgame to me, is that the St. Crispin's Day speech feels like Cap picking up Thor's hammer. Everybody's been waiting for it for so long, you kind of don't care that it's totally unearned. <laughs> because the thing that makes that earned in the larger context of the Henriad is that the Henry of Henry the Fourth, Part One, Part Two, could never give that speech, right? It's the idea of this character is transformed so completely that we've reached this huge moment for him. But in the context of Henry V, he's already made that transformation, so you're just waiting for him to give this big speech at the big battle and have there be a fight now, please God, <laughs> so that something can happen. Yeah. And it's just boring. You're just waiting for Laurence Olivier to come out and give a big speech and go, aren't I so great? And like, no, this sucks. No, you're not so great. One, and two, your speeches are also aren't so great. I mean, actor-director stuff is... I can't think of a single film other than Citizen Kane, honestly, where it works, right? Yeah. And Laurence Olivier, God bless him, is, you know, renowned as one of the most intelligent actors who ever did walk this earth. He's not a good director. His cuts to the script suck. He left shit in that's awful. He took stuff out that's quite good. His interpretation of Henry is just... There isn't one. He approaches every single important scene and speech from a completely different perspective. There's no development of a character at all. He shouts St. Crispin's Day from basically halfway through the speech. I mean, the build of St. Crispin's Day is absolutely musical in the way that it is written. And to throw it away on shouting... I, I wanted to set something on fire. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was just so fucking bad. It was also staged with the entire army, and that's not actually what's happening. He's only with his aristocrat generals, essentially. It's just, it's just bad. It's just so bad. All of those speeches all suck because they're all the horse version of why I hate boat movies, which is so much of this movie is like, we got horses. Great. Great. Thanks for the horses, I guess. That speech sucks because he's insisting on doing it on horseback. So he kind of has to shout it and there kind of has to be a big crowd because if he's just sitting on a horse next to five guys going like, guys, come in closer. Let me tell you about why we're all going to be heroes. But don't spook my horse. <laughs> yeah, don't spook my horse. Then that's a bad choice. Don't be on a fucking horse. Like, I don't. <laughs> but they have a horse, David. They have to use the horse. <laughs> Uh. Right. And like, that's the thing that's insane about this is that 
it simultaneously wants you to be impressed with it as a big special effects spectacular of like, this is what the medium of film can do. We don't need to imagine the horses anymore. And doesn't know what to fucking do with that. Keeps in all the stuff about, sorry, we don't have horses, even though everyone's on a fucking horse. <laughs> then doesn't know how to stage anything with the horses, doesn't know how to make the crowd scenes seem impressive. There are so many extras in this movie, and every time they just make the sets look tiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's a matte painting, huh? Yeah. <laughs> because he's just not a very good director. The, all of this money seems wasted. I mean, some of it is like actually physically in a field, but when you're on a soundstage, you know you're on a soundstage, and it weirdly feels almost stagier than the Globe Theater parts. Yeah, especially the stuff that takes place at the French court. Yeah. The stuff that takes place at the French court really feels like, would you like to see a masterclass in how not to stage act and how not to stage design? Well, have we got something for you? All the shit in the French court felt like Tom Baker and a Dalek were going to walk in at any fucking second. <laughs> yeah, or my middle school <laughs> choral teacher. Like, it was so amateur. This thing that specifically makes it feel like 60s and 70s Doctor Who is the insane checkerboard purple pattern for everything that goes across the columns and the floor and the weird whip pans to each of the members of the French court who are each doing their own little foppish game. It's just like, oh, the doctor's going to need to defeat each of these in turn. <laughs> what? It's just such an insane scene because you don't need any of it. First of all, just cut that whole fucking scene. Yes. <laughs> Second of all, if you're not going to cut that scene, at least make them seem like characters and not fucking pieces of flair. Yeah. Like, yeah. they all have a gimmick, which is just bizarre because it's not like you need to differentiate these guys at all. There's two of them that have like an antagonistic relationship. And beyond that, it's fine if you can't fucking tell the difference between any of them because they all just fall over dead in Act 4 unceremoniously. Like it doesn't fucking matter. And above and beyond that, we don't need to care about the French. That's the whole point of this play. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even try to humanize them by making them seem foolish. <laughs> yeah. Also, all the stuff with the Welsh captain and the Irish captain and Pistol, who's this English commoner who has a very high and mighty sense of himself and speaks in overwrought bad verse. He is a minor character in Henry IV, parts one and two. And becomes a major B character in Henry V and is a source of a lot of, and I use this very liberally, humor. None of that shit is funny and it's even worse here because they're really trying to play it in a way that is true to the historical context in which it was written. And Elizabethan comedy style isn't funny. It wasn't going to be funny to people in 1944 or 1946. It sure as shit isn't funny now. It's just not funny. You have to really, really work to contextualize Shakespearean broad humor. And some of it just isn't going to work now. Like forcing a guy to eat a leek 
is not funny. It's just not. It should just be cut. Honestly, the problem with this is like, just do the St. Crispin's Day speech. Maybe do the thing where he gets really mad about tennis balls. Basically, if you're just going to do the monologues, just do the fucking monologues because this play doesn't stand the screen test of time. Henry V is interesting as a story about Elizabethan England trying to understand itself. Like, everything interesting about Henry V is the way that it is mythologizing Henry V from the point of view of Elizabethan England. Oh, absolutely. The ways <laughs> it's trying to tell itself about its history and sort of make itself look good in its history. And the leak scene is only interesting in a, like... Nobody can beat up my little brother but me thing. The point of that scene is, hey, Scotland and Ireland may suck shit, but they don't suck shit like France. Yeah, we're all the UK. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that really is what it is about. And that is fascinating in the sense of that is what England was telling itself at the time. That it's like those weird scenes in all the World War I movies we watched that are like, Hey, Germans are a-okay with us as long as they're fighting on our side. Yep. (laughs) And as a thing that you're watching 400 fucking years later, leak-based humor just isn't holding up that great. (laughs) I would love to know if it even hit then. Because it's just not funny. It's not even like, this isn't funny because I'm a serious liberal progressive who doesn't insult blah, blah, blah. No, it's just not fucking funny to make a dude eat a very mild onion. I've eaten a leek. It's not that bad. The only thing I can imagine is that, like, you could physically do it, right? It's like, it's prop comedy. Like, they're actually forcing a leak into this dude's mouth is the only thing I can imagine is funny about this. And it's not very funny. Right, but the stakes of that are so low. It's extremely (laughs) low stakes. It doesn't... mm, Everything with pistol is like we... The worst. It's the worst. Just cut it all. Yeah. Again, then you run into this problem where this play is like 15 minutes long. Once you've cut everything that you should cut, that doesn't require the context of Henry IV to make any sense or be any good. Yeah, so maybe just don't do it ever. <laughs> do Hollow Crown. Like, do the Henry ad. Yeah. Do what you did, Susan, which is like, <laughs> perform this as part of a series of plays Because there's been a real spate. The National did it, but I feel like that is now the take on Henry V, is it's the Iraq War. And that kind of fits. That makes that first genealogy scene that, honest to God, I think in Shakespeare's mind, is supposed to be played straight. Like, I think in its original intention, it was supposed to be... No, no, no. Here's why it's okay that we went to France. We weren't actually the aggressors. If you look here on the genealogy tree, like you're supposed to take it seriously, but you can't because it's so self-evidently fucking stupid that even Shakespeare knows that you're better off making him mad about tennis balls. That's the thing that really kicks it over (laughs) the edge is that he's got this whole genealogy chart and he's still not super sure about it. But then the Prince of France insults him and he's like all right well fuck it we're going yeah that whole thing is just so bizarre not only is it boring there's nothing to play unless there's Henry 4 because that scene can be 
mildly interesting in the context of Henry IV, where you're like, what is the new version of Henry going to think of all this? Because I know what my friend Harry that I've been watching for the last two plays is going to think of this. He's going to think this is bullshit. But now he's the king. So like, what's going on with him now? Now I'm catching up with my old friend. But if that's your introduction to this guy is a dude monologuing about bagats to him, then there's fucking nothing to play. Like there's nothing in that scene. Yeah. Ugh. I will say that in this movie, and just in the play generally, there is one scene that I think is incredibly beautiful and is worthy of trying to do this play, which is the scene where the night before the big battle at Agincourt, where Henry basically wins this war, Henry puts on a cloak and under the cover of night goes out and speaks to the common soldiers. And talks to them as if he were one of them and finds out what it is that they're feeling. And we discover that there is a very different feeling among the ground troops than there is among Lord and Sir whatever who are going to be in charge of telling them to run into battle and die. And it's a very, very moving scene for me. And that the commoners are allowed because they don't know that their king is there with them. Why am I fighting for this guy? That scene, you're totally right. It is my favorite part of Henry V outside of St. Crispin's Day. It is absolutely, without question, the best part of the play. And I actually kind of had my eyes glaze over so much in watching this movie. I thought he cut it. Like, I had to go back at St. Crispin's Day and go like, oh, he really did do that whole thing. <laughs> It's lit so badly. You can see nothing because it's night. Yeah. And that's how night works, you guys. <laughs> but I will say that the actors who are playing the commoners are great. Yeah. And then we go to this whole speech that Henry has about his feelings of guilt and his feelings of responsibility about being the one who is going to tell these people to go and die. And if they die, being essentially responsible for the death of living human beings. And it is the speech that ties Hal, who used to hang out in the tavern and get drunk with all the commoners, to the Henry that we see in this play and why he is a better king for it. And Laurence Olivier just, oh man, he misses the mark by miles. He turns it into some combination of to be or not to be from Hamlet and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow from Macbeth. And it is so fucking maudlin. It's done entirely in voiceover and it's a pretty long speech with a close-up shot on Laurence Olivier's face with his mouth closed. It's bad. It's so bad. And I was so hopeful because the commoners were actually quite good. And I thought, okay, maybe he does get this speech. He doesn't. He doesn't get the play. He's not a good director. He's a very good actor. He needs somebody to tell him what he's supposed to be doing. Not himself. Yeah. It is specifically bad because he is giving the St. Bernadette performance. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Henry is so important, he doesn't act. <laughs> like, he is just this avatar for kingly, important, uh, everything is the St. Crispin's Day speech. Everything is the avatar of state. I am the king. Well, then that moment with the commoners doesn't work then. You can't do that there. 
It has to be about the conflict between him as a human man and him as the avatar of state. And if he's never been anything but the avatar of state for the whole play, then just cut that whole thing. Just cut everything. Just why are you doing this? Stop it. He does that speech like he feels sorry for himself. Yeah. And the point of the speech is that you sort of start there of like, upon the king, our lives, all of it is upon the king. He starts in that place of feeling overwhelmed and sorry for himself and then has to move out of it. And instead, we just have Laurence Olivier fucking sulking for five minutes. I think the idea is that it's so he can get it together in the St. Crispin's Day speech. Like, it's supposed to make that scene pop because it really needs some help. <laughs> But also, like we say, he throws that away because he's got to be on a fucking horse. Yep. It's bad. It's all bad. It's all bad. Don't watch this movie. It fucking blows. Don't even read Henry V. It also blows. I do think, one, listen to Susan's podcast, but two, also BBC did a version of the Henry ad called The Hollow Crown that I really recommend. I think it's very good. It's got a lot of British actors you're going to actually know from things because they aren't just like RNC ringers. Fucking Tom Hiddleston's there. Tom Hiddleston is not my Hal, but he is doing a really good job. And I think that he has a great take on the character and he has an obvious trajectory of growth. And I think The Hollow Crown is actually quite good. I think that he is interesting casting specifically because he's terrible casting for Henry V. Yes. Well, that guy's <laughs> never going to give the St. Crispin's Day speech. <laughs> have you looked at that <laughs> slimy little motherfucker? He should be playing Loki. Though he does have the thing that Kenneth Braddock also ran into, which is the final conversation with Kate where he's like, I know I'm not very good looking. And you're like, All right, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I know mirrors are very expensive in 15 or four. I don't even know when Henry V actually was. But as far as when this was performed in the late 1500s. But come on. Yeah. <laughs> You're very pretty. <laughs> Though I'm kind of okay with making that scene weird because that scene is weird. <laughs> You're just not going to have that scene not be weird. So if that's what you're throwing under the bus to make Henry V work, it's this final scene in Henry V where he is wooing the princess of France, but also he's not wooing her because he just gets her. Like, he just won a war. So that's gonna happen. And there's this weird energy to it where you can't quite figure out how much he's genuinely trying to woo her, how much he's just making his life easier, how much he's just tired of this courtly bullshit he has to do, even though she is actually the spoils of war. Her opinion on this matter is not actually relevant. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. There's a lot to play there. Well, instead, she has an over-the-top French accent and doesn't understand what he's saying. And that's most of the business of the scene. <laughs> she doesn't really speak English. His French is somehow worse. And it ends up being sort of a meet-cute. <laughs> sort of. Meet-cute's kind of the only way to play it, but with all of that stuff dragging it down... It's like the most bizarre meet cute outside of the scene in Meet Joe Black where Brad Pitt just gets unceremoniously hit by a car at the end of it. <laughs> where you just go like, that's a really weird energy to bring to this. Oh, yeah. I hate that movie. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. It's, it's not good at all. Much like this movie starring Laurence Olivier. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we should rate this movie. One. <laughs> 
I was going to go up to a two, but don't care. One. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I was going to go up to a two specifically because some people who aren't Laurence Olivier are doing some good and interesting work in it. But also, Laurence Olivier cuts all of the good speeches that aren't ones he gets to give from Henry V. Anything that's not a good Henry speech, he cuts to the fucking bone outside of O for Amuse of Fire. Well, and he also cuts the speech that makes him look like a threatening and terrifying warrior. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hate it so much. Literally was designed specifically to torture me. I don't know how Laurence Olivier knew I was going to be alive at one point and have to watch this. I thought that this was going to be almost the exact opposite of what it was from the description. From the framing device of the globe... I thought it was going to be, hey, you think theater is this boring, staid thing that's just a bunch of people in too much makeup over-enunciating things? Well, it's actually this dude fucking murdering some people on a horse. Holy shit, this rules! That is the opposite of what this is. It is, well, you think it's just a bunch of people in too much makeup being boring and talking a lot. Well, you're right. Here's a horse, you dumb fucks. Pay attention. <laughs> not only are you right, but here's the thing. It's not that theater is that way. It's that acting is that way. Because look, now we're in a field on a horse and it's still too much makeup with boring people over enunciating. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Hate it. It sucks. It's bad. Don't watch it. Nope. If you ever create a time machine, let me know, because this is definitely going to be on my checklist of shit to get done in the 40s, is make sure this piece of crap isn't made. It is only interesting to me in that I now get what the Kenneth Branagh Henry V is doing. And like, again, listen to Susan's podcast or watch Hollow Crown if you're going to do anything, because you should have all that context. But if you want a completely contextless version, for fuck's sake, watch the Branagh one over this christ if you're just like i have to know henry five for some reason uh since david keeps plugging it which i really appreciate the podcast is called hal you can find it sometimes on itunes but only the first two episodes are up so we're not even into henry four part two yet <laughs> But that's a great impetus for me to finish it, which was the thing that at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, oh, great. I'll totally get all six episodes done. And like, here we are a year later. <laughs> yeah, we were all going to write King Lear in quarantine and then whoops. <laughs> which is a good play by Shakespeare. Yes. And he didn't actually write it in quarantine, but everybody said that at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, next week... We are watching the best years of our lives, which I still don't know anything about. <laughs> yep. Bad poster, though. I'll say that for it. It was the winner, and it does star Myrna Loy and Frederick March, who tend to be people that we like on this podcast. So maybe it'll be good. Maybe. Probably not. I mean, probably not. Well, now, okay. No, the more I'm looking at this, the more I'm becoming vaguely hopeful. Maybe this is sort of a do-over of Since You Went Away that did some stuff I wanted since you went away to do that it didn't. For instance, it has Greg Toland as the cinematographer 
and is kind of talking about a more interesting part of that story, which is what are the guys like when they come back from the war? It is the same number of minutes, which is Troubling. 172. I will confess that that number disappointed me and I was very much looking to see a one as a middle digit there between the one and the two and not a seven. Sorry about that. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Tune in next week to find out if this is actually better than Since You Went Away or is the Bells of St. Mary's to Since You Went Away is going my way. <laughs> oh, Christ. Yep, yep, yep. Anyway. Until then. This was Henry IV Part 3 and people really need to fucking start knowing that. Stop doing <laughs> Henry V on its own. Just stop. <sighs> I hated this so much, David. I really get that. I really, I zoned out for a solid hour of this. And my dad is a Shakespeare teacher. Sitting through Henry V was my fucking childhood. And like, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it as an adult man with an adult man's patience. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> the dead with charity enclosed in clay. And then to Callis. And to England then, where ne'er from France arrived more happier men. <laughs>